Well, that's an interesting passage that Tosh read to us about turning water into wine. And we're going to think about that, but we're going to think about it in the context of just how are we doing? I've been talking to people this year and this week, and one of the things I hear is that most people are tired of COVID. They're just tired of being closed in, tired of being at home all the time, tired of not being able to see their friends. Some of them are tired from not being able to go to work, though a lot of them are happy to be at least home. And there's this, I wish I was in church again in person. Well, I think January and February are just two of the most challenging months for mental health. It's uh, cold, it's dark, and we know spring is not coming for another six months. And yet, Jesus promises us that he came that we might have life and have it in abundance. He came and said that my burden is light. My yoke is easy. And maybe today, our prayer is more like that prayer that David prayed in Psalm 51. You know, let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. We're going to look at two stories today, and I think they're the answer to that prayer. I think they're the answer to that challenge of what COVID is doing to many of us this week and this year. And they're a bit cryptic. And when we read them, we kind of think, yeah, man, if I was writing a gospel, I'm not sure I would start this way. No, I know I say that all the time. I would write the Bible completely differently. But it's what we got, and it's there for a completely um, good reason. And we're going to find that out today. But it is this um, interesting two stories to start really the story of Jesus with. I mean, we've looked at a couple of things in the first chapter. But it starts out with a story of Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding. Or as one of my profs in seminary who was Anglican would say to us, uh, Jesus turned water into wine, but for you Baptists, that's probably Coca-Cola. But not only did he make wine, he makes lots of it. So he uses these six jars, and these six jars contain somewhere between 500 and 750 liters of wine. Jesus didn't just make wine, he made a liquor store. And he goes on then, not only is it wine, it's good wine. And then he takes it to the master of ceremonies, or the servants do. And the master of ceremonies, it's at that point of the wedding. And these weddings go on for seven days. So it's at that point of the wedding where they drunk all the wine already. And he's thinking, man, that's alcoholic wine. I'm not sure these guys are in a condition to really uh, value how good this wine is. Well, that's the first story. Second story doesn't seem to get too much better. Uh, he tells a story, John tells a story of Jesus going to the temple. And he makes this whip, but he drives out the animals. And he overturns the money changers' temples. And as you read that, you think, I'm not sure what that means. What do we do with that? How does that encourage my heart? What has that got to say to, you know, the fact that I'm suffering through COVID? And I think the answer we need to find is in the word sign. Jesus, uh, John says, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana. And he goes on to list seven of these. We'll look at them as we go through the sermons in the next uh, 10 or 11 chapters, he'll, he'll have six more signs. 
He never uses the word miracle. He uses the word sign. And in John's thinking, a sign functions as a symbol of something else. So Paul Ricoeur, who none of us have read, but was a postmodern philosopher who was almost ununderstandable, talks about symbols, and he says this, they are sensory experiences that make accessible in the present a non-sensory transcendent reality. Okay, in simpler words, a sign or a symbol is something that we experience that points us to a deeper truth. So, for example, uh, you see an engagement ring on a woman's finger, and that is a symbol of the fact that she's in love, the symbol that she's going to get married, the symbol that she has this very special man in her life. It has this symbolic meaning beyond the fact that it's a gold ring with a diamond in it. And Ricoeur goes on to say that you can kind of recognize the difference between just normal reality and a sign or a symbol, either from historical usage, which is we recognize the ring because it's become part of our history, or we see an absurdity which doesn't make any sense. It destroys, he says, the possibility of taking it literally. And I think in these two stories, we're going to find both of those. So let's just take a look at them. First one is this wedding at Cana. We've already read that. Tosh read it to us beautifully. And uh, let's just kind of review what the story was. So uh, Jesus, his mom, and the lads, the disciples, are all invited to Cana for a wedding. Now, Cana is a very small village. It's a short walk, day's walk from Nazareth. And uh, that's where he grew up. And that's where John 21 tells us that Nathanael is from. Now, Nathanael was the last disciple that Jesus called immediately before this story in chapter 1. So it's only mentioned in John, this town of Cana, but it is mentioned three times. So it's mentioned here. It's mentioned again at the end of chapter, 20, at the end of chapter 4, and it's John's way of putting a bracket around that that little section, because that's a, a unit that he wants us to see together. And then he mentions Cain again at the end of chapter 21, at the last chapter of John, because he wants to tie the whole book together. And it's a way of doing that as well. Anyway, Jesus' mother comes to him partway through the wedding and says to him, the wine has run out. Now she knew that because she's got some connection to the host or the hostess of this wedding, because Jewish weddings ran for like seven days, and you needed a good supply of everything, because if you ran out, this is a shame culture. It's a culture where, where uh, if you are ashamed, you're just scorned. And to run out with something was to become shamed, and, and so it ruins your reputation. So Jesus' mother comes to him and says, you need to help out. And Jesus responds with, uh, well, that's really not my problem. And his mom doesn't argue, but she does go to the servants and just simply says to them, do whatever crazy thing this guy tells you to do. And I think parenthetically, that's probably the first takeaway for today. If, if you want to have a relationship with God, that verse in John 2, 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. That, I think, is one of the heart parts of a relationship with God. Anyway, Jesus then just tells the servants to fill these jars with water. And they're described as stone water jars. And they're 
the jars that were used to hold the water where you would ceremonially wash the, ser- the, the guests' hands and their feet. And he says, fill them with water, take that water up to the master of ceremonies, and the master of ceremonies discru- discovers that it's the best wine he's ever had. And he compliments the bridegroom. So remember, Ricoeur said, if the story makes no sense, there's probably a symbolic meaning. And so we turn to history to see what that could be. And we discover in the Old Testament that every part of this thing has symbolic meaning. For example, weddings were always a symbol in the Old Testament of God's relationship with Israel. In Isaiah, a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. In fact, it's going to be fulfilled at the end of time, according to Revelation 21, where it talks about the angel said to me, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In other words, almost the last thing in the book of Revelation is this wedding feast, which is uh, God's description of what it will be like to arrive in heaven. And John the Baptist said, trying to describe his relationship to Jesus, you yourselves bear witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. And the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom, which is what he's identifying himself with, who hears him and sees him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So this whole idea of a wedding feast should get our senses tingling at least just a little bit. And then we read about the wine running out. And in the Old Testament, wine is a sign of God's blessing and presence. In our last sermons from Amos, we read, Behold, the days are coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. In other words, when Amos is trying to paint what the future looks like when God is fully present and we call that heaven, he's talking about wine. And I think what John is saying there is that Jesus was sent by God because Israel had turned its back on God. And where the relationship was supposed to be like a wedding banquet and the relationship filled with new wine, now the wine's run out. And Jesus describes what he came to do, this new kingdom, as as new wine. Remember that passage in in Mark? He said, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. And he's talking about coming to fulfill the Old Testament. And in that fulfillment, it's like uh, an immense quantity of the best wine suddenly shows up. And so Jesus uses these stone water jars. They're used for ceremonial washing, and they're expensive, and they're made of stone because stone can be cleansed if it gets unclean, whereas if it was a clay pot, it would have to be just broken and destroyed and replaced. And so every house had these, and they were only used for the ceremonial washing, which was their way of acknowledging God in some way. And what Jesus is saying is those those are a symbol of All that's left of their relationship with God is ritual, and the jars are empty. The wine has run out, 
and their relationship with God has become simply ritual and ceremony. And so the story of how Jesus turns the water of the old ritual way into knowing God, into new wine. And, and John works into the story hints of how that's going to happen. It starts with that the story begins on the third day. And in our next story about uh, the temple, Jesus says, destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, referring to his death and resurrection, that he rose on the third day. And this third day is a way of talking about Jesus' death and resurrection, that, that it's going to take Jesus' death and resurrection for this newness to come. And Jesus responds to his mother when she says, uh, they've run out of wine. He says, my time has not yet come. My hour is not yet. And it runs throughout John's gospel. We're going to see this again and again. He's going to say, my time is not yet. It was not his hour. And it always points to his crucifixion. And you kind of wonder, well, well, that's a crazy answer. All she's asking to do is do something about the wine. And he talks about his death. And yet it's his death that in this symbol of wine as, as a new relationship with God, it will take his death to overcome sin, to defeat evil, for us to have this new relationship with God. And then finally, at the end of that story, it says he revealed his glory. And that could be just, you know, he did a great miracle and a few people who knew that he had done it, because most people were unaware it could be that miracle of just the wine itself. But I think most likely he's talking about the fact that it points deeper to how Jesus is coming as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So we have this simple story of, of Jesus at a wedding making wine. But there's layers upon layers in this outline that John puts, and it's going to outline his entire gospel. It, it's a kind of a summary of the things he's going to teach us. That Jesus is going to overturn the Old Testament religion which had only become rules and outward actions by this point. And he's going to make it like new wine. Or in another image he will use with the Samaritan woman, living water. God's presence and God's spirit filling us. Well, that's the first story. He tells another one because it's a complementary story. It's sort of seeing with two eyes. It's seeing in three dimensions if you want. And he speaks about overturning the temple. Let me read it to you. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers, and they stayed there a few days. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It's Passover. One of the three feasts that all Jews were to best to go to in Jerusalem. And Jesus and the lads go up. 
And when he arrives, instead of checking into the hotel and maybe taking a quick swim in the pool, he makes some rope, he goes into the temple, he makes a whip out of this rope, and he drives the cattle and the sheep and the doves out of the temple. And he overturns the tables of the money changers. And the disciples remember a verse from Sunday school that said zeal for the temple would consume him. And if that's a, just a little bit of a surprising story, well, it's just as surprising for the Jewish leaders of the day. And so they come and confront him, and they demand that he explain himself. You know, what authority do you have to do this? And he tells them cryptically, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up again in three days. And they tell him he's crazy. It took 46 years to build the temple, you know, just slightly longer than it took us in our last renovation. But the disciples remember all this. It says, when Jesus was raised from the dead. In other words, it made no sense to them at the moment either. And maybe it makes no sense to you. And maybe we just need to uh, kind of figure out what's that story trying to tell us. Well, it falls into two scenes. Uh, the first scene is Jesus going into the temple. He sees the animals and the money changers. And the animals are there because they're the pre-inspected animals that can be offered for sacrifice. So you're going down to Jerusalem and you're going to offer a sacrifice. Well, you can carry Bessie the cow with you the whole way. Or, better yet, you sell Bessie up in Galilee. You get the money, you carry the money down, you buy a new cow when you get to the temple. That's what they were doing. Or a sheep. Or a dove. The money changers were there because every male Jewish person had to pay a half shekel temple tax. The tax went to pay for the sacrifices that were issued every day. And everybody paying them meant everybody had some part in that daily sacrifice for sin. But that uh, only a certain kind of money could be used in the temple. The average money that the people had had pictures on it. And you could never have pictures on stuff in the, in the temple. It was God's thing against images. And so they had to trade it in for the special kind of Tyrian money. And uh, that's what these guys were doing. They were, for a small commission, <laughs> uh, changing the money into what's acceptable for the temple tax. And Jesus is concerned that all this commerce is taking place in the temple itself, specifically in the court of the Gentiles. And that was as far as anybody who was not a Jewish male could go. There was a court of the women, but it was very small, then a court of the Jewish men, and then there was the priests where they did the sacrifices and all these things. Now, the temple was an enormous place. Um, so the courtyard, which is all walled in, um, probably bigger than the site our church is on, and we have four acres of land. But the temple itself in the middle of that, and then in this big expanse, that's where all the animals were, that's where all this was going on, but, but it's where Jewish God fear or non-Jewish God-fearers could come. And it's as far as they could go. And it's where they would come to pray. It's where in the book of Acts they would come and meet. And uh, all of this transaction is going on and there's all this stuff going on. There's no accusation that these guys were unethical or, or making money. We read that into the text. What was bothering Jesus was that the selling was happening there at all. It used to happen on the Mount of Olives across the valley from there. And then people would just lead their animal through the Kidron Valley up to the temple. But now they were in the temple itself. And the temple was becoming much more the ceremonial place of buying and sacrificing. And the scene ends with the disciples remembering, zeal for your house would consume me. It's a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. 
The second scene, the, the leaders come and ask Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Now, I don't think Jesus, you know, we tend to think of the temple as being like maybe the size of our church. And there were all these animals there and Jesus cleaned the whole thing out. I don't think he cleaned the whole thing. I think he, he symbolically cleaned a corner or a part. <laughs> Four acres of land is a huge amount to clean. It's why I think you could have two different cleansings of the temple. Because it, it wasn't this big thing. It was really just Jesus symbolically doing a part of it. And they ask him, what's your authority for doing this? And he says, I tell you what, you destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. How's that for authority? And uh, it makes no sense. <laughs> Jesus is not going to build a temple that took 46 years that covers four acres of land and more in three days. But it's a clue that he's talking to the fact that three days is a clue that he's talking about his resurrection. And he's talking about his body being a temple of God. And it's something that John is going to get into, that a temple was where God dwelt, and now God was dwelling in Jesus. And so Ricoeur says, if you find absurdity, look for a symbolic meaning. And John actually gives it to us. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. And when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this. Okay, so what is John trying to tell us through these two stories? And what is he saying about anything that we said about, man, you know, it's a struggle to get through COVID, that I'm, I'm just feeling dry and I'm feeling that I'm just trapped. And John is saying, that Old Testament religion pointed people towards God. Daily washing, daily sacrifice, uh, Passover feasts, the other feasts as well. They reminded them of their sin and their need for God. And the temple with all its special features was a picture of the holiness of God. And it was a sign or a symbol or it was the place where God said he would dwell. And he would be present. And Jesus is saying in this part that God no longer dwells in the temple. God is in Jesus. Or as John put it in the introduction, we looked at the first week. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Or as John puts it here, he was speaking about the temple of his body. In other words, the very presence of God was now present in Jesus. He had come to fulfill the temple as he came to fulfill sacrifices. He came to fulfill the feasts as we'll look at throughout John. John's gospel is how he fulfilled the Old Testament. And in his time here was the presence of God among us. And then the promise is that when he died and went back to heaven, he would give us his Holy Spirit that we would have God's presence within us, that we would become temples of God because God lived in us. And so Jesus has come to take this all deeper. He's talking about religion is no longer going to be external acts. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, defeating evil and giving us a fresh start, and God is going to send his Holy Spirit and he's going to live within us. 
And no longer will God be in the temple. And no longer will God just be in Jesus. But God will be, through his Holy Spirit, in each of us. And in these stories, what Jesus is saying is, there's a new promise of a fresh experience of God. It'll be like wine fermenting and bubbling, or for us Baptists, like living water poured into the dryness of our COVID-sapped lives. And I think that's the main takeaway for this morning. And the question is, do you have this relationship with God that is more than just external? It's more than just, I go to church. It's more than just, I belong to a family that goes to church. It's more than just, I read the Bible. It's, I have a relationship with God where I have invited God to come into my life. And because I've confessed my sins and I believe that Jesus died on the cross and defeated Satan, God can come and live within me. And I can be a temple of God. I can have the new wine of God's spirit inside me, fermenting and bubbling. And I wonder this morning, for all of us who have already made that decision, have our, has our relationship with God just become dry and formal? Outward things that we do, maybe out of obligation, maybe out of that sincere hope that this will make God feel real. And I just think God is hoping to clear the external out of our lives. He's hoping to fill us with this fresh wine, this living water of his spirit. He's inviting us to ask afresh this morning for his spirit to come upon us, to draw us back to worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And I was reading this morning in my devotions about uh, in uh, John chapter 12, Mary comes and she anoints his feet with this expensive perfume. And she's just bowing at his feet, worshiping him. And I just think that's what God's inviting us to. To come back to worship, to come back to asking afresh for his spirit, for knowing his presence with us, to coming back and worshiping him. To come back and find our joy, to find what we need in this time where it's dark, it's cold, it's lonely, it's boring, it's dry. And that can become true of our relationship with God as much of our relationship with the world. And God is inviting us back this morning to that fresh experience of new wine, that fresh experience of God cleansing out all the external stuff and coming back to that internal experience of knowing that his spirit lives within us. Coming back to that psalm we read at the very beginning, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I think that's what John is trying to say to us this morning. I think this is what John is saying through these two stories of, of wine in its abundance. God's Spirit poured out for us. The temple with its cleansing 
that God is fulfilling all the external with the death of Jesus Christ and calling us back into a relationship where we become the temple of God, where his Holy Spirit is within us and we experience him. My prayer this morning is that we would just turn back to God, come back to him and say, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Fill me afresh with your spirit that I may worship you, that I may serve you, that I might live with and for you. So, Father God, this morning we just pray that. We pray, O oh God, for living water, for fresh wine to flow into our lives, that your spirit would come in all his fullness and power, that you would draw us to you, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that our relationship with you would not just be external, but we would experience you filling our lives, restoring our joy. And Father, we pray this week, may we experience you afresh. May your spirit fill us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.